Hello, TTB community, and welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint Podcast. Each episode, we like to bring you insight from travel authors, adventurers, conservationists, digital nomads, tour guides, and some of our very own personal travel experiences. My name is Bob Demena, and joining me today is the incredibly indispensable Elliot Chibley. Thank you, Bob. So our guest today is Sarah Stadola. She has written a chronicle of paradise, profit, and peril at the beach. And in this episode, we talk about her book and we dive into the psyche of the beachgoer and we get into the heart of what drives humans to seek out the sand. A fascinating, fascinating take on, you know, resorts, your typical beach vacation trip. I think we discussed our own personal travel experiences to the beach and what it means to us. Um, and then we get into the to the darker side and realities of resort cultures, such as strangleholds of, on local economies, reckless construction, erosion on beaches, and all of those things, and what we can do as travelers. So again, fascinating discussion, awesome, awesome uh, book. So we really hope you enjoy the episode. Travel tip of the week is invest in a good backpack. It is probably a, an undervalued tip, because a yeah. good backpack can, a bad backpack can really hurt your trip. A good backpack, you won't realize it's a good backpack. I, I'm a huge, I, I, I love a good backpack, and I'm just going to throw mine out there. They're not paying us. They're not a sponsor of the show. I wish they were. But the Cotopaxi brand, um, I think mine is called the Alpha 35 liter or like Alpaca 35 liter. Amazing backpack. It was like $200. So I waited for Black Spicy. Friday. I waited for Black Friday and ended up buying it. But this backpack should last me years. And so it Better. was truly an investment. Yeah. And, and I should have it for a very long time. I'm going to go on a side tangent really quick. And sure. I have my backpack from fifth grade still. Yeah. It's like a Jansport, isn't it? Yeah. Is that what you <laughs> no, it's East Pack. East Pack. East Pack. Yeah. yeah. And I have another one too. Yeah. I, yeah. And I, it's, had, it's had some uh, rough wear and tear, but you know, I've, I've repaired it where I could. So yours is a good travel backpack if you were just like needed to throw stuff in, throw it into the overhead. What I like about the Cotopaxi is all the different straps for your hips, for your chest, to where if you're really wearing it and you have a lot of weight in it, it is good. It it provides really good support, whereas I don't think yours does. Oh, no. Mine is strictly like I am going in a car trip overnight somewhere. Right. That's like it is a school backpack. It was designed for a fifth grader in the early 2000s. Right, right. (laughs) Whereas mine's more of like a – this is a good travel bag that gives you, uh, you know, all of the different little compartments and and comfort while being – you know, while having to to hold it for really extended periods of time. Okay. Well, that is the travel tip. So lastly, please consider some of the other awesome travel products that we offer. How do you organize and plan your trip? So if you like to keep your trip organized like we do, you can use the travel journal and planner that we developed for our very own personal travel experiences. This will allow you to record things like the dates, the budget, the top destinations, the currency exchange rate, the time difference. It has a fillable calendar and it provides you the ability to write out your entire itinerary by the hour. In addition to that, it has a place to store reservation information, a packing list, a to-do list. And then at the very back, it offers you space to journal about your trip. You can find this travel journal planner on our products page, and once you download it, you have it forever, and you can reprint and refill it out for every trip you have moving forward. Now, if you do decide to purchase this, we encourage you to reach out to us with any tips to make it better. To help compile all of your info for the journal slash planner, we turned ourselves into cartoons to create a five-part video course that provides a step-by-step process to create the ultimate itinerary, including number one, navigation, number two, booking airfare, number three, blogs, research, and reviews, number four, itinerary building, and number five, safety, cultural norms, and thoughtful travel. The goal of this video tutorial is so that you can become your own personal travel agent and learn how to be plan efficient trips now and forever, all the while saving you money to splurge on a nice meal or first-class seat for your next adventure. Yeah, and now, so if you still think that planning your trip is a little bit too much or you just don't have time to sit down and actually do it, I can personally plan your trip for you using all the information that we just mentioned. If you're interested in this, please send me an email at thetravelersblueprint at gmail.com or visit our service pages on our website, and we can meet over Zoom to discuss the details of your trip. You want to contribute to the podcast? If you work in the travel industry, you can join us for a travel roundtable discussion by submitting your information through the TAT form on our website. You can also send us a travel article via 
direct message or at thetravelersblueprint at gmail.com for the monthly Travel Bites episode. Support us by wearing us. Go to redbubble.com to find awesome gear and merchandise of the Traveler's Blueprint. Some of the cost comes directly to us to help support the podcast. We definitely recommend the hoodie and the hat and maybe a sticker or travel mug. Whether you purchase a product from us or just want to learn about travel alongside us as we interview our guests, know that we greatly value your support as a listener of the show. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Sarah, welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so we're looking forward to it. We are have we have you on today to talk about uh, your book. So it is The Last Resort, a chronicle of paradise, profit, and peril at the at the beach. Peril, right? Peril. <laughs> I, do, it, it I think you're thinking like right. non-parels. It didn't sound right when it came out. <laughs> I think but you're I didn't hungry. Have the right word to sort of throw it in there. Uh, this well, is super interesting. Fun. So I, I I read through some of the stuff that we were sent and. Why do people like the beach? I have no idea. When you really think about it, like what makes the beach so enticing? So uh, I guess let's just jump into it. Um, tell us, I guess, the quick background of the book, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go more into the origin story of how you got started. But what is this book really? What is it about? So the book is, it's a deep look at the kind of cultural phenomenon of beach resorts and beach culture. It's a look at how, like you said, how that love of the beach came to be. It's not necessarily inherent to <laughs> human nature. Um, and then it, it looks at, um, I look at how that love of the beach has become the basis of this enormous global industry um, that I feel is kind of underreported just how huge of an industry this is globally. Um, and then this industry is, is facing some really unique challenges from climate change. Um, and so I cover that yeah. as well. Yeah, that's so, so we, we do have a lot actually to talk about today. Um, before we get into that, so why don't you give us just a quick summary or, or of your background? So how did this pique your interest for you to <laughs> dedicate your time to write a book about it? So, yeah, I was, um, you know, doing quite a bit of travel writing, you know, over the years. And, uh, but I never really focused on, on beaches or beach tourism necessarily. Um, and I didn't really have a, you know, I didn't grow up going to the beach a lot. It wasn't really a, a big part of my life. Um, and then I started dating a surfer <laughs> and uh, found myself going on some, some beach uh, travel vacations. Um, and because I think I, because I was coming at it uh, from an outsider's perspective like that, going to beach resorts kind of, it just struck, they struck me as kind of strange places and it, like a strange cultural phenomenon. Yeah. And, and I became very interested in that. Um, and so the whole thing kind of, kind of sprang from that. It's like a, it's a very interesting subculture. It is. So I grew up and still live about 45 minutes from the beach, from the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, I'm in New Jersey. And so I've, I've gone there multiple times, um, you know, for every summer, as long as I can remember, at least like once or twice. Um, and I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> it's just what I do. It's just what we do. So um, that's really interesting. So yeah, so, so now you're intrigued, you're, you see that there is this cultural phenomenon, this is, there is this love for the beach. Did you figure it out? Why do I love the beach? Tell me. <laughs> I, th I, th I don't know why you love the beach, but, um, <laughs> and I'm not sure that you do actually, uh, but it's kind of, it could be a kind of historical fluke, um, you know, for most of human history or at least the the european history from which you know beach vacations sprang uh people were terrified of the beach in the ocean they wanted nothing to do with it um that that really only started changing in the 1700s i would say um it was you know european explorers had started going out into the ocean and, and coming back to tell the tale and and so that kind of um demystified it you know, somewhat. Um, and then in the 1700s, the romantics kind of turned the ocean into this place for, for contemplation. Um, 
Robinson Crusoe, mm. the book came out and uh, turned the ocean and the beach into a kind of adventure. Um, and then, but the thing that really flipped the switch kind of was some doctors in England um, started touting the like supposed health benefits of sea air and sea water. And it became, became kind of a, a wellness craze of the, the 17 and 1800s. And that was the first time that people started heading to the beach because it had something to offer them, you know, it, it improved them instead of, yeah. you know, being something to be scared of. So, um, yeah, it was it was kind of a wellness craze that did it that wasn't necessarily uh, based in sound science. <laughs> Interesting. So it was like the, the R&R was really yeah. the drive. Well, I, it was, you know, it wasn't R&R, though, at the time. It was uh, it was kind of a rigid thing to go do. You would have a schedule of, you know, times that you had to get dipped in this cold English, you know, oh. the seawater there was not tropical. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you would get prescribed, you know, people would get prescribed to, like, drink seawater when they woke up in the morning or, like, mix it with their wine at night. Um, it was a very... Uh, like I said, rigid kind of activity that that wasn't rooted in relaxing and in fun necessarily oh, at all. So they didn't they didn't see it for the for the mental health benefits. They saw it for like physical health benefits. Yeah, like drink this water and it will help you physically. Yeah, which we exactly. know which we know isn't true. But there is something to the R and R, right? Now it doesn't necessarily need to be need to be the beach, but we do have a pretty good grasp that you know taking time off, taking time to relax and sort of reflect and slow down has its health benefits and that's sort of what the beach is for me so i'm just going to speak for myself and why i love the beach and maybe you can give me insight on my psychology so like the <laughs> the 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 beach is there are multiple things that i enjoy about the beach right so it's the time to reflect it's the time to slow down and sit with my family normally it is the environment itself like this massive ocean that I get to now see and the waves and there's it's it's beautiful right you have the the horizon with the birds you have the the sand and the the water so the environment itself just like the mountains or wherever else has its has its you know things that make it beautiful the ocean does too uh, and then there's the culture around it the food the other people kind of there doing the same thing you are doing uh, and like being down the shore is just something that I've grown up with that I, it's so hard to pin exactly why I love it. But I guess it's a mixture of, of all of those things. I don't know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I think, you know, for the Jersey Shore, especially, um, or the, you know, the eastern, you know, seaboard of the U.S., yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was also a place to legitimately a place to cool down, you know, back when the mm. first beach resorts in that area emerged, people used them to get out of these like stiflingly hot cities in the summer. Um, mm. And, and that's, that was an innovation of, of America. Whereas uh, before that in Europe, it was a purely wintertime activity. People went, uh, you know, to the, the French Riviera or to the, the English seaside resorts in the winter. Um, and so hmm. it was really an American thing uh, to start doing it in the summer to cool off as a like refreshing activity. Wow. Um, That's caught on then from America back yeah. to Europe because now Europe, obviously, Everywhere. they love their beach vacations. Yeah, right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And that That's was like in the 20th century, in the like early 1900s. Um, you know, rich Americans started going over to, to Europe and convincing these hotels to stay open in the summer for them. And that's kind of how that cross-cultural uh, so, evolution so happened. Americans are responsible for the tourism industry of European beaches. For I don't summer. know if I would go that far. Um, <laughs> okay. They, they, they are responsible for the shift to the season being in the summer, for sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah, okay. for sure. Yeah, like I know uh, Palma de Mallorca is a an incredibly popular beach island for Germans and mm -hmm. Spanish. And like it, 
I didn't realize that the that beaches were not I assumed that beaches were just like part of you know the I guess human history in terms of using them for not necessarily relaxation but like we've been we've had access to them for so long mm -hmm. because we most of our population is along the coast or along a river I mean even freshwater has beaches in some places so the fact that it hasn't been used for uh like a place that you want to go it's just a place you had to go right it's fascinating and That's now right. everybody it, it only seems like a place that you want to go like real estate is higher in beach towns than anywhere else yeah yeah uh i i mean i think part of that is now when you go to the beach if you go to the beach you're not just contending with nature just you against nature it's it's mediated right through mm -hmm. this industry that that has you well protected now. And so it's it's a safe space to go to in a way that that it wasn't always. Yeah, that's pretty so cool. Did you dive into the industry itself? I did. In what sense do you have in mind? Like like uh, in the corporate sense, like in the in the dollars and uh, yeah. Like how did yeah, it since I mean, the early 1900s? It's, I mean, so it's, a, an enormous global industry, travel and tourism overall, you know, not just beach tourism, is a $9 trillion industry, which is, um, some people argue that's the biggest industry in the world. I, it's, you know, that's all, it's not exact, you know, quite that. I think you to consider clear. like how it trickles into restaurants and all, you know, from the top down. Yeah, I think that it depends on how you classify that kind of thing yeah. or, you know, the people who work, I don't know, like a, a garden center that that sells plants for the landscaping of resorts. You know, does that count as right. part of the tourism industry or not? So it kind of depends on how you classify it. But either way, it's an enormous, enormous global industry. Um, and, and that's one of the things I wanted to do with the book was kind of shed some light on that because I feel like the way that travel usually gets covered um, in the media is, you know, it's kind of relentlessly positive, first of all, it's, um, and, it, and it's kind of intended to either inspire people to travel or like logistically help them travel or um, that kind of thing. And it's travel isn't usually approached as a topic to be investigated, you know, as a business or as an industry um, or as a huge global economic power, it's, it's, it doesn't get covered that way as much as it should. And that's one of the things I wanted to do with the book. Yeah. <laughs> that's so, yeah. So the, the beach industry itself has always been fascinating to me, but the, the resort towns specifically, like the, the destination resorts that are all inclusive, how do those factor into it and how big are they compared to just like your East Coast, you know, Coney Island versus like Ocean City where it's a beach town, but the beach itself is just open. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the struggles that a lot of more, you know, developing countries or, you know, lower income countries have when they kind of welcome beach tourism is to how to kind of deal with the tendency of, of these resorts to kind of create a bubble within that place um, to where, you know, you can go to a beach resort in some of these places and never really experience the place because you're, you're more in the resort, the resort culture than you are in the culture of whatever country or, you know, wherever, whatever region you've traveled to. Um, and I think that's one of, that's one of the big challenges um, of having successful beach tourism is to make sure that that bubble kind of doesn't happen. I think um, the local populations end up much more satisfied with having that industry um, if it's not such a bubble uh, than, than if they're excluded from it entirely. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Huh. I never really understood the resort. <laughs> Uh, just because, you know, you, you're going to, you talk to people and they say, I went to uh, Belize and they went and they stayed on the resort and they touched the sand in Belize, but mm -hmm. they, that resort could have been anywhere. Yeah. Um, 
in the world. Most of the time, the chefs aren't even from the country. They'll hire good chefs. So you get really exceptional food and you get a version of the food that Sometimes, this yeah. foreign tourist made for you. And you touched the beach in the country, but you didn't really meet anybody. And so I, I know this is off topic, but I don't, we kind of joke that there's a difference between a vacationer and a traveler. And that mm. obviously falls more into the line of the vacation. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't even have words. Like, I don't know why. I don't understand the appeal to go to a country and then only stay in the resort. Yeah, it's one of the things that I always um, kind of point out and laugh about is is that most of the resorts I went to while researching this book, um, the pool was actually a much hotter commodity than the beach was. Like, it was a lot harder to get yourself a lounger at the pool than it was on the beach. Um, and, and that always struck me as so weird that, you know, you would travel so far to go, not, to go, to go to a beach resort where you're not really experiencing the culture. But then also you're not actually spending that much time on the beach. You just want to go to the pool. Um, and, and that's one of the yeah. kind of quirks that always strikes me. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. It's like they, they want the beach nearby, but don't actually want to go to it. And, and they they'd the rather climate. go in the water of a pool right. than the water right. of the ocean. Right. And, and they're traveling for the climate, right? And, the, and to see palm trees. I don't know. I don't know. It's so confusing. I don't, I really don't understand it. Yeah. Well, I think at this point it's taken hold and it's kind of become bigger than any kind of logic. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. you could, you know, you can try to break down like, why do people, but it's so entrenched in our culture to want to go to the beach and to love the beach that, that it, it's bigger than anything that we can, can logically apply to it. I think. Yeah. So what, what we we can logically, I think, break down as as was mentioned early on, are these darker realities as they were, as as you put them, of resort culture. Um, can you list those out for us, and then pick which one you'd like to start with, and we could start talking <laughs> about them. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, there's you know, there's the kind of inevitable. Um, uh, forced towards overdevelopment once a place you know becomes popular so that it heads towards overdevelopment and decline and that's kind of a cycle that is hard to break um but can be um there is all of the ecological damage um that that happens um there is the increasing difficulty of like keeping these resorts in place at all with like sea level rise and 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 so many of these places are in hurricane belts that are that are just getting more and more hurricanes and stronger hurricanes hitting them so um there's that there is the um frequent like increase in income inequality um, or wealth inequality that happens in in these more developing areas that that welcome uh, beach tourism. Um, what what else have I not covered? <laughs> um, Carbon footprints was something that right. Yeah. There's there is the um, high high carbon footprint um, of actually getting to a lot of these resorts. Yeah. You know, if you look at a place like the Maldives or something, that there is no way to take a vacation to the Maldives that that is in any way sustainable environmentally you know just purely because of the flight the long haul flight you have to take to get there um or you yeah, could be like greta thunberg and just sail there yeah with the uh standard two-week american yeah. vacation they'd have Absolutely. to give yeah. Uh, yeah a little more paid vacation time would probably be <laughs> yeah. necessary I think the maldives are sort of at the forefront of um climate change i don't know if that that's probably not the right way to put it but they're seeing the impacts of it pretty severely mm -hmm. right so their island is shrinking from what i understand they're mm -hmm. losing land mass and they're, mm -hmm. they're able to quantify it um so it might not even be a beach destination soon right right that, that island though is It'd so be a diving destination fascinating though it yeah it will be it'll be like the, the modern atlantis but um it's really mm -hmm. this modern city plopped on this small little island with some boardwalks with little huts and all you ever really see in the pictures are the boardwalks and the huts and no one actually sees this super modern 
or a, you know, pretty modern city. Um, is it even really a beach destination? I don't know. I guess so, technically, but. Yeah, I mean, I think, yes, and especially in terms of the Maldives economy, it almost yes, all stems right, from, right. <laughs> like, that is yeah. their industry, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Did you have any specific insight on how they're handling and being challenged by climate change? And, you know, I mean, I, I, I we, go, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. We, we should have asked earlier where you actually traveled to. That would help. But um, you can go on if you do, if you had information on the Maldives. Uh, well, I didn't actually go to the Maldives during the research for this. Um, OK, but I the the biggest challenge that the Maldives is happen, having is sea level rise. Like yeah. we were just talking about, you know, they, they don't necessarily get the big storms and stuff, but um, they're very, very, very close to sea level there already. And um, I think have a high likelihood that the Maldives won't even exist, you know, 50 or 100 years from now. It's, it's uh, pretty dire. No. It's going to be Waterworld. Venice will be gone. We'll lose some land. Yeah. You know, once the East Coast of the United States starts to lose land, then we'll take it seriously at least. But until that happens, which I don't know if you know this, but I think there's a, an island oh, is it off the coast of Virginia or Maryland that the mayor is saying like, yeah, hey, man, I'm, I'm losing land here. Like we're able to do it, but no one's really caring. I wish I knew off the top of my head where that was. But I know the Outer Banks right now is. I don't know. There's been a lot of videos that have, you know, made it into the Twitter sphere and whatnot yeah, right. um, of, of just, you know, houses that are just falling into the ocean when there's a high tide now in the Outer Banks. And yeah. um, they're having a lot of trouble keeping that shoreline in place. And they are trying to, you know, they, some of the towns there, a lot of the towns there are trying to raise the like property taxes. 50%, you know, that kind of thing, um, to try to pay for keeping the islands in place and for, you know, the road is getting washed away. The road out to it is getting washed away like every couple of years now it has to be rebuilt and it costs tens of millions of dollars. And so it's becoming this thing of a standoff between the residents and the, the governments that if this place is going to continue to exist, somebody has to pay for this continual rebuilding and, and um that's really interesting. Protection. So yeah, yeah, so when does when do beach destinations when does it become so uneconomical to maintain the beach destination destination that they just go extinct? Because they're too expensive to maintain. Well just yeah. we'll just move further inland. I guess. Yeah. I mean but but you don't have the same beach, like the no, barrier islands. Yeah. So as these barrier islands are covered in water. Yeah. Well, the bar barrier islands are uniquely um challenged right yeah. now. Um <laughs> But I think there's also the factor of um, insurance. I think a lot of places before too long are going to kind of become uninsurable. Or if they are insurable, the insurance costs are going to be so much that, that nobody can afford to, um, to buy it. Um, and that will have an impact on whether yes. things get built, you know. I didn't, yeah, I didn't know this conversation on uh, beach destinations was going to be so depressing. But I mean, like, yeah, so, so now I'm feeling, you know, in the context of climate change, we have the beaches that are being eroded. We have cities like Las Vegas and Phoenix that are drying up. We mm -hmm. have California and Oregon and Washington that are on fire. There's, there's a lot to deal with. There's yeah, I mean, this is a difficult summer to be this optimistic is, yeah. about climate change. Yeah, for sure. I think there's a proposal to bring water from the mississippi to california i saw that yeah yeah it's putting a band-aid on on which is insane yeah, yeah. it is uh, yeah it's insane. Well, just yeah. not just the the actual infrastructure to do that but the ecological and environmental impact. exactly especially when you have a, the perfect case study of the colorado river and how <laughs> it was used to yeah. the point that it dried up and it killed everything at the uh the the delta the river delta is a dead zone yeah, like there, nothing can there is there. no delta but yeah, it's, it's, so let's let's do it to the Mississippi, the one that we rely on even more than the Colorado River. Um, what could go wrong? You know, right. it's not down the road. All right. No, that, but I think, we got a little I, off topic. We went yeah, inland. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, but I think the, yeah. the ethical question about traveling to these beaches 
because they are typically so far away, I mean, unless you're in the U.S. just driving to one of the beach resorts on the East Coast, or you're going down to the Caribbean, which is a little bit still better than going to like Seychelles or the Maldives. Um, but then you have uh, the environmental impact of the actual people on the beach, not the actual transportation to get there, but the movie that uh, the beach, the beach that was highlighted in that had to close. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, you know, it wasn't, I think it might have reopened recently it actually. Um, yeah. Um, it, but it did close temporarily until it, its environment recovered because it had become so popular and so overvisited that its ecology was dying. So yeah. So they just completely shut it down. Yeah. Um, and I think doing that plus COVID, um, probably helped it recover, you know, because there yeah. were no tourists in Thailand for quite a while. So. I went there before it closed and it was just overran with tourists mm. and boats and it was nothing like, you know, you want it to be, which is just a right. weird thing of travel where you want to get there and you want to experience like, you know, without any other tourists. But yeah, it is one of the strange way. things about travel that even though you know a place is um, too well known and is going to be too crowded for enjoyment, you can't resist going there anyway. Um, it's it's a phenomenon that I, and I experience it also, you know, when I, uh, you know, I went to the Greek islands and uh, knew that Santorini was gonna be completely overrun and, you know, kind of a nightmare, um, but I had to see it for myself anyway. And I think that that perpetuates all of these places being being overcrowded, just like the, the beach beach yeah. was, you know. Yeah. So where did you go? What, what countries did you travel to? You know, I, I keep getting asked this question and I need to actually kind of count the places I went to, like have a list. Um, you know, I, what I was trying to do was go to places that um, represented, you know, beach tourism at its different stages of evolution, you know. So um, I went everywhere from... Uh, Nias, which is this island in Indonesia that is recently, not not recently, within the past you know few decades, um, discovered because it um, it has a world class surfing wave there, and so this small beachfront industry has um, emerged there. But it's um, it hasn't gotten to the stage where outside companies are coming in. It's all you know, all of the little guest houses are owned by the locals and it's having this very kind of profound effect on that one little local economy. Um, so places like that all the way to like Acapulco, which, you know, had its heyday in the fifties and sixties, um, as kind of the glamorous destination of the world, um, for beach tourism and then really suffered overdevelopment and had it decline because of that. And, um, so, the the overdevelopment thing is is really interesting, and so the overdevelopment married to how it impacts local economies, right? So you have this beach town; it slowly becomes popular. At first, like you said, you have the locals directly uh, controlling the tourism mm -hmm. in the beginning, and then slowly the companies come in and they take over, and the locals. Some, most locals get pushed out, but some get jobs with the company. And so it helps mm -hmm. some people, but it doesn't, yep. it helps the minority, you know, a small fraction of them. Um, yeah. I had this, that, yeah. I, I had this really good example in Vietnam. You know, the central coast of Vietnam is getting very heavily developed for beach tourism right now. And um, uh, I met this guy named Hoa who had this place since I think the 90s that was called Hoa's Place. And it was kind of a backpackers kind of beachfront um spot and it was like the only one you know it was fishing villages and then hoa's place um and and then the you know the big developments came in and he eventually got pushed out um and and so he's a person even though he was a pioneer of it didn't get to reap the ultimate rewards and i kind of juxtaposed that against um i also met with a woman in a, a a pretty senior position at the Four Seasons there, um, whose life has just been kind of completely transformed. 
um, but only by working within, you know, a, a foreign company. Um, so it was, it was really interesting because yeah. kind of the person who should have benefited when that industry started exploding there got pushed out, you know, and the land where he, he had Hoa's place and he has reopened it in a smaller, further back um, location. But where the original Hoa's place was is now a resort that's run by a Spanish company. So it's just such a good example of how how that development happens if laws aren't in place to protect land rights and all of that, which, which they weren't there. So. Are you familiar with Varosha in Northern Cyprus? No. So I think Bob and I had talked with someone um, very early on, on the podcast and Varosha is, uh, it's really interesting if you're able to get there because it's a, it was a beach resort that has been shut down. Like nobody, hardly anybody has been in the beach resort since the seventies. Okay. Cause there's been like, um, some discrepancy between Turkish and Cyprus rule who actually mm -hmm. has it. Um, right. but like JF there's places named for like JFK and, um, a few other people and it was really popular, but then it just like was closed down for a very, very long time. And they're thinking about reopening it now for civilian. I actually, I've seen pictures of what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's, now it's, it's kind of wild. Like I would love to yeah. see that, um, to see what would happen if all of these beach resorts just like went away, not went away, but if there were no people using them anymore. Like, would they just be reclaimed by nature yeah. or? Yeah. Yeah. They would be eroded by sea air and seawater, right? And then, and then reclaimed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it all depends on how they're built also, you mm -hmm. know, if it's all concrete structures and stuff, then the beach probably isn't going to be able to like reaccumulate, but if they were built differently and smarter, you know, for their environment, then, then probably the, yeah. the natural environment would recover. I would say. I, I think unfortunately we're headed in uh, the path towards more concrete um, than anything else. And, and like, we have all these perfect little examples of it. I know Bali is one where, was this perfect little beach resort for so long and now you apparently i have never been there but the coast is just concrete resorts and uh that's like actually a good example too where along the southern coastline it's all concrete resorts and then the poorest of the poor are on the northern side of the island reaping no benefits from that really um i think that's the way we're headed i i, I do i don't i i unfortunately don't have um a lot of optimism towards conservation and preservation, even though that's what I'm hopeful for. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it can happen. It can be done right, but it, it really takes, um, I don't think it can happen right. And <laughs> yeah, without kind of larger structural um, input, which is, you know, the government basically has to have the foresight to put these kind of limits in place to how things can be done in order yeah. for them to end up being done right. Yeah. The foresight to care too, like to care yeah. about the future rather than how much money they can make in yep. the years that they're working in that position. Yeah. Which. Yeah. And know. that's one of the things I discovered researching this is that for the, you know, for the richer developers who will build, you know, like a, a fancier beach resort, um, the general, what they call the payback period for how long it will take a developer's investment to break even and then start reaping a profit is usually somewhere in the range of like five to seven years. So they don't really need to have decades forward um, looking foresight. They just need to know that the place will be viable for 10 years so that they can make a profit. You know, so there, there's definitely that um, Kind of built in lack of need for foresight a lot of the time interesting have yeah. you seen have has anybody in the the beach slash resort industry taken steps to change the way they practice on a yes i mean yes in in certain you know there's certain countries nicaragua is one of them that I cover in the book that has a law in place now, and it's not the only country, there's several countries that have this where any new um, development, any new construction has to be set back at least 50 meters from the high tide line. Um, yeah. 
So, and that just that one step goes a really long way to to preventing beaches from eroding and and from their um, ecosystems getting messed up and and that. Um, so that's just like one small move that governments can make and that a lot have um, that can make a really huge difference. Okay. Yeah, it's really interesting. Do you have one specific experience that really resonated with you that you that stands out as as your favorite? Um, <laughs> just one. Um, <laughs> I will. I will bring up you know as a so that we we can have a note of optimism here. Um, <laughs> I uh, <laughs> when I was on this island called Tiamen Island in Malaysia, um, that is pretty small scale beach tourism. It's a really popular diving destination. Um, but as uh, beach tourism has kind of gotten more popular there, they didn't have the infrastructure to deal with the trash, basically. Um, and there was this, there's this NGO called Reef Check that, uh, you know, its purpose is to save reefs around the world. But um, they, they kind of went heavily into Tiamen and um, and they hired, you know, a full-time person to run the program there. And he, uh, you know, lived there, moved to Tiamen Island, lived there for years and just got to really understand all of the very specific issues with trash removal and traffic, trash accumulation and all of that. And um, he managed to start recycling programs um, to get a lot of the stuff off the island. Um, but the one thing he couldn't figure out was glass. Because in Malaysia, the way, you know, whatever subsidies and stuff are set up, um, it's much cheaper to just create new glass than it is to, to recycle it. So there is no recycling of glass uh, available. And so all these beer bottles from tourists were just piling up all over the island. It was a huge problem. The locals were super frustrated with it. And so um, what this guy did, Alvin is his name, what he did was he bought this machine that is a sand making machine. Um, and you know, it was a few thousand dollars and it takes glass bottles and turns them into sand. So you stick a glass bottle on the top of this machine and out comes sand at the bottom. Um, and he, so, you know, the, the, um, the NGO paid for it and bought it, but ended up giving it to this very enterprising local who was, you know, responsible and, and excited to, to um, keep keep it in action. And and so it solved this problem of glass on the island in this really innovative way. At the same time, you know, you need sand to mix with cement for construction, for concrete construction. Yeah. And the locals were having a really hard time getting sand when they needed to do construction and so then you start to have a problem with what's called sand mining which is sneaking sand off of the beach to mix with cement for your construction so it kind of ingeniously solved these two problems at once which was this accumulation of glass and the shortage of sand and and it was the it was the single most just kind of like encouraging thing that i that i saw in terms of solutions that's um, pretty incredible yeah, yeah. yeah, it's very there, cool. There is part of me that feels hopeful that we'll solve the problem with tech advancements. You know, we'll always be able to figure it out because of the problem spurring innovation, the need for it, right? So, I don't know, until, until our luck yeah. runs out. I mean, I think in some, <laughs> in some cases, and, you know, Miami Beach is the one that I kind of focus on the most in the book that is a place that has enormous environmental challenges right now. Um, at the same time, they have enormous financial resources with which to try to combat these, these problems. Um, and so I think, you know, a place like Miami Beach could come up with the solution. But I think, um, I think a lot of places that aren't kind of as well financed and don't have as much wealth flowing through them probably will have a tougher time. Uh, yeah. So if they, if they have to deal with it before Miami does, which is likely they may perish, their, their industry may perish. But yeah, I do agree that like, uh, I know Las Vegas is sort of the flagship for a lot of water resource conservation efforts mm -hmm. in the urban environment. They're sort of leading the forefront. They 
are really smart with how they use their water. So yeah, maybe Miami will be at the forefront of for you know tech advancements for deteriorating beaches and and flooding and yeah. construction management because I know they installed um, pumps throughout the city to handle the water because I think it comes up right, right through the limestone, right? Like right through their bedrock. Yeah, because it's a very porous um, right. ground yeah, limestone. there. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, so as the sea level rises, they have, it's called sunny day flooding. It means that they're having flooding, you know, on otherwise perfect days. Um, and so they've put pumps in, they've installed these, um, in the drains, they've installed these things that like open to let water down, but close and don't let water up yeah. so they're basically um, backflow preventers it's like yes, standard yes, stuff we exactly. have in our like water pipes at home right right the sewer um, just on yeah. a much larger scale it, it yeah. is it's fascinating to see that um they've taken the next step in basically elevating all of their streets two feet mm -hmm. yeah which yeah. is which is creating some unintended consequences in that the the streets used to kind of serve as these channels when it did flood to kind of like channel the water back out to the, the bay or the ocean. Um, and now a lot of residents are complaining that the stuff that used to flow down the streets is now like falling into their yeah. yards or buildings. So it's, Yeah, because they're not um, lifting the buildings. So yeah, the water that yeah. would be collected, that water right. that would be on the streets is now being pushed to it's the sides. pooling in, in residences? Yeah. Well, yeah. I think that's going to create issues for like not just the water movement, but access to to the buildings, right? You have a two-foot drop that didn't exist before in tight spaces. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can tell where they've already... And it, they haven't done it, you know, if you just go to Miami Beach for your vacation and you're, you know, you're on Collins Avenue or whatever, that's not where they've done it so far. Um, they've done it um, more in the residential areas. And, and you can you can see where it's been done. It's very obvious where where it's been done so far. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. It's also fa it's fascinating that we're still we're at the mercy of Mother Nature to such a degree like that we're just being forced to upgrade and manage and we're sort of always have mother nature nipping at the at our heels yeah. to yeah. to make sure that we yeah. don't all die just when humans think that they've <laughs> conquered everything right <laughs> right right well i think i think new orleans is a prime example of that and that was almost 20 years ago now and new orleans much like miami has a lot of pumping systems because mm -hmm. it sits a little bit below sea level now and the levees worked for a very long time and mm -hmm. now they're they're not guaranteed anymore yeah yeah because they were kind of built for a certain level of the ocean that and without anticipating how much sea level was going to rise yeah so yeah. Mm -hmm. sandy too i don't know if either of you remember hurricane sandy that hit the east coast a few years oh, yeah. ago that destroyed a lot of the jersey shore they still never bothered rebuilding it and at low tide, you can still see some of the pillars from old boardwalks and stuff, mm -hmm. piers that they that are just out there. Um, Gone forever. Yeah, the, the the subways of Manhattan flooded. It was it was. Yeah, no, I actually. Hit, hit here. We had a apartment in Rockaway, which is I don't know yeah. if you know it's um it's a it's basically a barrier island, but it's a peninsula technically. It touches the um, but we we had an apartment out there that. Um, that was in an old house and the boardwalk like landed on the apartment and um, it was a, it was a mess, but um, that's an example of like the government of New York. I don't know exactly what happened in New Jersey, but um, the government of New York after Sandy started a program that was no questions asked, like willing to buy people's houses um, on Rockaway at market rate and then return that to nature. Um, because they kind of decided that this was not a viable place anymore. Um, but there was, there was very little uptake, um, in that program. So, uh, it didn't That's really have a big impact, but, but they did, they did initiate that program. Yeah. It's wow. kind of, um, if you look at Google earth now, there's a section on Northern Rockaway where it looks like a lot of the boardwalk, um, and some of the houses were hit pretty hard and it's just all the streets are there, but it's just all green in between it now. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's actually not from Sandy at, on, in Rockaway. That's from this 
you know, Rockaway's really interesting because for a time in the kind of late 1800s, early 1900s, it was like the beach destination in the United States. It was an enormously popular place. It had hundreds of hotels. Um, and, you know, obviously people have barely heard of Rockaway outside of the kind of tri-state area now. Um, and that was kind of that empty swath that's there now was kind of just a clearance um, of of completely run down blocks that were really um, yeah yeah in complete oh, disrepair wow. yeah with an intention to event, like to rebuild something on them but it, it never happened so yeah oh, it's kind of it's crazy that within New York City you have this beachfront that's just completely empty it's really yeah it's strange very interesting. yeah. And yeah. It's got all the infrastructure too. <laughs> it's totally. Yep. Yep. Wow. Yeah. So, so you, this, the, you, the, the experience that you got from writing this book seems to be pretty vast. If you could now go back and do it over again with the information you have now, would, was there anything that you would change? I think, um, sort of thinking about, you know, regrets or, you know, whatever, um, when I look back on it, there's just some places that I really would have liked to have covered that I didn't end up being able to. Um, you know, one of those is I really would have liked to have gone to China and seen how beach resort, beach culture is is developing there. Um, you know, with this um, Chinese middle class that's getting bigger and bigger and bigger every year, it's having a, a really big influence on what vacations look like all over the world. Um, but I really would have liked to have been able to to go there as one example. Um, I think a lot about um, like Rio. I would have liked to have covered the beaches of Rio, and I didn't. Oh, yeah. um, I would have liked to have gone to like the Costa del Sol in Spain, which is just a that would have been a less you know incur you know there's overdevelopment is rampant there, so that would have been a really interesting kind of case study too. So I do think about the places that I think would have made really interesting additions to the book and, and wish I could have um, included them. Yeah. Without, without giving the book away, um, is, is what's the, is like your conclusion, like buy a mountain home, stay away from the beach. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I do. My conclusion is that a lot of the beach resorts and, you know, beach destinations that we know and love today probably aren't going to be here a few, few decades from now. They're probably not going to make it. That's not to say that all of them won't, you know, certainly some of them will still be here and new ones will probably crop up, you know, that we don't even have today. Um, I do think that the beach resort of 50 years from now is going to look different from the beach resort of today um, That's in, in a number yeah. of ways. Yeah. I, I, I could see it. Like, I, I could see there being some sort of cultural shift where like the marketing changes and you don't have, mm -hmm. because you see that with other things with like younger people where you start to that well younger people are more aware of climate change than obviously yeah. any generation before them and they seem to already be making wiser choices and you know the types the plastics they use the things they eat they're more conscious about where their food comes from and i wonder when it'll be you know they're you'll get uh, beach shamed beach resort shamed you know yeah. going to the beach yeah which, i think it's you know, not even right which could be completely legitimate um but that's yeah, I wonder if that's that's going to happen. I think, yeah, and then if you look at, I think about some of the pop, pop culture things, you know, and White Lotus, I don't know if you guys watched White Lotus last no. year. It was this kind of hugely popular HBO show about um, a, a beach resort in Hawaii that was, it was all based on the kind of conflict between the locals and the very rich, no, no, you know, no. outsiders. That sounds interesting in. though. Is it a documentary? Oh. What is it what? A documentary? No, no, it was a scripted show. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I, I think there's some examples like that that are kind of starting to show cracks in our um, just kind of like unbridled love of the beach. Um, mm -hmm. I think people are starting to, to kind of question some of the elements of it. Yeah. Yeah. If you're paying attention, it's hard not to. Right. Like if you if you yeah. realize the impact that you're having and you understand, you know, what a carbon footprint is and, uh, you know, where your waste goes and mm -hmm. that plastic bottles remain in the environment forever and all these things. I, 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 it's hard not to try to change. Yeah. I mean, if you're, yeah. So 
And it's hard not to have a certain like underlying level of discomfort also, which makes your beach vacation maybe a little less fun. You know what I mean? Yes. If, if yeah. It's, well, it's a, it's a big thing that we're running into with travel. I mean, we promote travel. Mm-hmm. We love to travel. But flying on an airplane is ridiculously yeah. uh, harmful. The, the carbon footprint is massive. I don't know if you saw what's popping up now where they're posting how many uh, metric tons of carbon the richest of the rich are emitting. I did see and, like, that. Taylor Swift yeah. is like Taylor Swift one. is the biggest offender. Yeah. <laughs> and like yeah. Uh, what one of the the um, uh, Jenner, Kylie Jenner Kylie, took like yeah. a ten minute airplane ride. Yeah. To beat traffic. Yeah. And, like on a private jet. <laughs> yeah, and I think that whole thing stemmed from that Kylie Jenner had posted um, on Instagram a picture of her, at you know in front of her private jet with a Rolls Royce or something and um and you know the reaction is just like that's so out of touch to be to be kind of bragging about and Mm -hmm. and showcasing that as something aspirational like we shouldn't be encouraging private jet travel um but it's something I grappled with even just writing this book because I had to take a lot of flights to write this book you know and yeah um it's something you just you have to grapple with and I I did I bought offsets for all the flights I took. I tried to take trains when I could and all of that. But but there is this reality that that if we're going to travel at the moment, it does come with this carbon footprint and we have to grapple with that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so we want to thank you, Sarah, for coming on and really cheering up the day today. <laughs> uh, we appreciate your time. Make me um, feel bad about my next beach vacation. <laughs> I know. Are sorry. you going to the beach in like a week? <laughs> yeah. No, it, it, it's all, it's, it's really important. Um, and, you know, these types of conversations and your book is what changes the cultural perspective, which would, which then changes and helps change the legislation that allows us to have different technologies of transportation. Yeah, so it's, exactly. it's it's sort of a process in that way. Um, share where people can uh, find you on social media, your website, your your where people can buy your book. Uh, my website is sarahstadola.com, um, just my first last name dot com. Um, Instagram and Twitter. My handle on both of those is Estadola. Um, those are the easiest ways um, to find me online. Um, I would encourage finding the book at your local bookstore, but it's also available on Amazon, of course. And um, bookshop.org is a, is a good alternative to Amazon that I like to. to oh, encourage. good to know. I did not know that. Yeah. yeah. Bookshop.org? Bookshop.org, yeah. And they. Okay. They donate a portion of every sale to, you can choose the local bookstore, the independent bookstore you want it to go to, or if you don't designate one, they, it just goes into a pool that goes to, oh, to that's pretty cool. bookstores. Yeah, it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I like that a lot. Um, I'll use that. Format. Yeah. So. Um, well, before we let you go, we have a rapid fire round. Are you ready? Uh, I don't know, <laughs> but I'll try to be. <laughs> you are now. Yeah. So um, they don't need to be one word answers, but. And somewhat rapid. We're not, you know, holding you against the timer or anything. Uh, Go. The first question. What is the first word that comes to your mind when you hear the word travel? Um, adventure. All right. Very good. Uh, and you can't pick one of yours, but what travel book had the biggest influence on your life? What travel book had the biggest influence on my life? That's not mine. Um you know, the ones that I'm thinking that are front of mind right now are the ones that I, you know, kind of was inspired by writing my own book. Um, so um, there's a there's a book, another probably not the most encouraging one. There's a book called Overbooked, which uh, is is really informative about how over tourism and overdevelopment um, has happened. So we'll go with that one. <laughs> All right. Nice. What is one practical thing travelers can do right now to enhance their next travel experience? To enhance it um, for themselves, I would say if you're, you know, focusing on beach tourism, if you're going on a on a beach vacation, I think that as a traveler, you can get a lot more out of the experience if you if you try to go to kind of an independently run resort rather than a you know, one run by a big conglomerate, um, I think you have a higher likelihood of interacting with the local culture, you know, learning something without 
you know, study. Yeah. <laughs> um, just yeah, as part of the fun, you know, you know, kind of enhancing your trip that way. So that would probably be a, a recommendation of mine. Okay. Yeah, that, that falls in line with what we talk about all the time. That's the yep. exactly the type of travel we try to promote. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the flip side, tell us one thing travelers should not do. <laughs> one thing. Um, <laughs> Just so one. let's go with you should not take a flight to the other side of the world just to go to a beach resort there um, because there are so many like equally fantastic beaches, surely, on your side of the world. All right. Like, that's, yes, very good advice. Pertinent. And the last one. Uh, what is one piece of advice that you would give to yourself 10 years ago? <laughs> what I would give to myself 10 years ago? Um, I think um, I was doing a lot of travel writing 10 years ago, and I'm glad now that I have evolved the way that I'm researching travel and writing about travel. And I think I, I would have tried to tell myself to do that sooner because I think it's been really rewarding and I've, I've done more rewarding writing because of it. All right. I like it. Sarah, thanks again for coming on the show. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you so much for having me. Elliot, do you love the beach? <laughs> I, I like the beach. There are pieces and activities at the beach that I love, but I don't know if I necessarily love the beach itself. I like, I think I would rather do other things than the beach. Like if I had to do one trip a year, it would not be the beach. Okay. I agree with you. I agree with you. If it was down to one trip a year, I would not pick the beach, but I do love the beach. Okay. But I, I, I grew up in New Jersey and that was like part of the culture yeah. going to the I beach. I mean, I grew up in Eastern Pennsylvania and still like do New Jersey beaches and Maryland beaches were part of our like routine trips and I did yeah. like them, but I think I, I still like the mountains more. Yeah. It's such, it's, a, it's such a, a different experience. It's like saying, it's like comparing, I guess, a city to, I don't know, the mountains almost. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, but I'm saying I, the activities that I do in the mountains, I like better than the activities I do at the beach. Yeah. The, the, the beach is not, the beach is about relaxation. Yeah. And it's about sort of family bonding, being there together, playing, whereas the mountains are more of this, you know, experience, like external, like travel adventure experience. Well, so I, think that's what, I think that's what your interpretation of the mountain is. Cause me, I like well, yeah. the, the hiking aspect of the mountain being in a cabin and being able to read next to a fire and still it can be very family oriented. And yeah. Then, yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. Like still playing games, doing all that stuff. So I think they're both, they both can both be very family oriented. I think traditionally the beach is way more family friendly and that's, it's sometimes easier to do the beach. It's also a lot more accessible. Like we have mountains in Pennsylvania, but they are little tiny baby mountains. Yeah, and the beach is just, it's easier for everybody. It's more inclusive for people who are, aren't able to hike for whatever reason. Yes. Um, yeah, there's just something really nice about it. And, and for those of you who live in landlocked states within the country, I recommend, if you haven't yet, trying a beach vacation and seeing, so, seeing how you like it. I think the question I want to ask is not necessarily why you love the beach, but what do you love to do at the beach? Well, that's shifted since I've had children. I used to love beach games, volleyball, uh, okay. you know, yeah. frisbee, soccer. That used to be my thing. Get you know, have some cold beers, meet up with friends, yep. play a lot of beach games. That when you're all done, great. Sit, sit in the chairs and relax. Now I love building sandcastles and okay. digging holes. And yep. my children love the beach. They love being in the sand. And it is just so much fun. Yeah. No, I, I, so one of my favorite things to do at the beach is play cornhole with my brother-in-law and yeah, we usually have like oh, yeah. a yeah, 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 tournament yeah. every year, not a tournament, but we, every single day we kept a running tally of our record to see yeah. who would come out on top at the end of the week. And my brother-in-law is very good. And I'm also, I, I claim to be pretty good at it and we mm -hmm. were pretty even except for the last day he ended up taking the lead. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's fun. I don't go in the ocean, though, I should say. I do you don't not, like sharks. Not above my knees. No, yeah. I don't like sharks. I just don't want to get eaten by a shark. 
apparently they live there. I'm avoiding them, and the populations are on the rise along the East Coast. If you don't know that, now you do. New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Jersey, watch out. Sharks are out there. Their populations are rising, and I don't want anybody to get eaten by a shark. Yeah. I do love also uh, building sandcastles. Not necessarily sandcastles. I should say sand moats and making yeah. uh, bulkheads mm-hmm. and, like, so my my father-in-law, as you know, is a carpenter. This is a really long outro, by the way. Um, my father-in-law is a carpenter. I am an engineer. So we like to, we literally drew a blueprint in the sand of what our moat would look like and then built that moat. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. And we <laughs> actually had people come over and be like, do you guys do this for a living? And we're <laughs> sad to say that we do. <laughs> Playing in sand is awesome. And really, it's just dirt, which is just so funny because it's just a form of dirt. It is. Um, and it's just so much fun to play in the sand. And we we made like beer pong tables out of the sand where you can just dig holes to like where you can stand in them kind of. And like and then you have the flat surface that yeah. you can play or, or yeah, seats. It's it's so much fun. It is. And you could do so much. You could relax. You could drink. So you could party. You could. Yeah. Ah, the, the options are endless. And you have the sound of the endless. ocean. It's yeah. beautiful. You have the birds, the, the seagulls chirping. And um, just make sure they don't steal your sandwich. I know in some beaches in the United, in the uh, in New Jersey now, there's people who carry uh, falcons on their arms, and they'll let them fly along the boardwalks or beaches as deterrents for the seagulls. That's amazing. That's, yeah, it's it's in like Wildwood. Uh, I think maybe That's Ocean really City cool. somewhere. Yeah, I've, I'm surprised they haven't started playing like the Oscar outro music yet. What do you mean? Oh, because <laughs> we're talking too too long. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, let's let's end it. Thank you for listening to the podcast. the The best way to support us is as simple as liking and sharing our social media posts. If you if you do follow us on social media, if not, that's a great way to see when we upload a new episode. Um, if you'd like to support us in a financial way, you can do so by clicking the link on our Instagram, buying us a coffee. There's a link in the show notes to this podcast. You can do the same thing. Donate as simple as low as like one dollar, and and we would put that towards the production of the show. Um, we also do have merchandise if you're interested in that. I have a hoodie and a hat. And, uh, and that's really it. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Stay healthy, stay safe, and tune in next week.